and welcome to How to Launch an Industry, brought to you by Marku and Aurora, bridging the gaps between business, science, and consumers in cannabis and psychedelics. I am Jehan Marku, your lead moderator for the group discussion today, and as usual, I'm joined by Dr. Nigam Aurora. Hey, everyone. Thank you for being here, Nigam. And joining us again is Dr. Sarah Jane Ward. Hey, it's wonderful to be back. Awesome. And joining us for the first time is Graham Pashenik, a cannabis and psychedelics patent attorney. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. I'm delighted to be joining all of you. We have a great show for you today, listener. For our popular science and news section, we're going to discuss um, the possibility of Canada legalizing magic mushrooms. We'll discuss a interesting article entitled Lost in Thought about the psychological risks of meditation. We'll talk about some recent news about how the future is not looking great for smokable CBD products and about how only losers patent using drugs about patenting combinations of weed and psychedelics. And for our peer-reviewed rapid-fire science, we'll be discussing uh, some recent published articles. Uh, One is on state research on the consequences of fickle federal policy, and the other is on neural correlates of the shamanic state. And we'll be ending with a game to test your knowledge on patents. All right, we'll go now for a short musical interlude and we'll be right back. And we're back. Now it's time for us to peruse and discuss some news and popular science articles. This is the non-peer-reviewed portion of the show, and away we go. So according to Lexpert Business of Law's website, um, Canada is exploring psychedelics and creating an industry post-cannabis legalization. Now, while there have been many successes and failures with the legalization of cannabis in Canada at every level, some people would argue, there have been companies that have thrived and some surprising, you know, public health potential benefits, as well as some also some issues. I mean, you have, you know, new channels of trade, many new jobs, innovative products, but there are still major concerns uh, about product safety. Um, and the system has kept the door open for the illicit market. So while the cannabis industry is moving on to its next phase of its life cycle and Many are looking forward to the removal of other products from the list of controlled substances. So I guess I got to wonder if Canada is going to go the same route and remove psychedelics such as magic mushrooms from the controlled substances list as they did uh, for cannabis. Um, Nigam, I'd like to go to you first to kind of get your thoughts on the, you know, these activities in Canada. Do you think... uh, Canada going taking this approach will make it, you know, I don't know, will it will it be as questionably successful as their cannabis endeavors at the federal level? Or do you think they've learned their lessons and, and this might be actually a really good time to sort of put in some decriminalization and legalization of magic mushrooms? Wow. So I have a lot of thoughts. I'll try to keep it concise. So one <laughs> I just can't help but say is it's all a ploy to sell um magic mushrooms to well-off German folks through a pharmacy. Um, 
And as we've discussed on the podcast before, hold it in a port in a port in Pol- Portugal for about eighteen months in the interim to make sure the potency is low enough. Okay, so so that's me joking, um, partially, but. Um, <laughs> So there, there's that thing like Canada. They did it with cannabis. This thing of like, okay, our population is not that big. And a lot of people in Canada, just because of the nature of like the lifestyle there, they're kind of like have like uh like decentralized thing. People just like, it's like a huge place and people spend like have, have a lot of space and like time away from other people. So they like, grow their own weed. They grow their own mushrooms is a point in a lot in a lot of circumstances. So anyways, um, there's that whole thing of like, Oh, will Canada become the export leader of psychedelic mushrooms after they legalize it federally? Uh, maybe. And and that's fine. Um for uh Jehan what you're talking about the like lessons learned. Man, uh I can I can only hope, I can only hope that you know, the everything that's happened since federal legalization of cannabis um has not gone unnoticed, but you know, there's so many nuances that we can look at. Like, so some people say it's a huge success. We have so many billion dollar companies on the stock market and so much money and investment coming in and so many Canadian universities doing research. And in, in that regard, yeah, there there's, there's good stuff happening there. But on the flip side, um, how is the average Canadian patient who uses cannabis as medicine doing compared to before? You know, um, how far has it come and how far could it or should it have come? Um, so I don't know. I, I could talk all day about it, but those are uh, some some thoughts off the top. Well, thank you. Yeah, Nigam, I, I, I can appreciate that. You know, Sarah, I want to go to you next. And, you know, this article had a section on research and clinical purposes. That was kind of vague. But one of the big differences here is that it, you know, unlike the cannabis space where it was like legalize everything then let's do research which is kind of like eat your dessert first and then have dinner that uh, because that always works um but i'm wondering here you know this is talking about the first step many companies are taking is collaborating with universities and healthcare professionals to fund testing of psilocybin or psilocin either in research settings or in preclinical clinical trials so you know, if you could kind of wave a magic wand, what sort of research would you want our partner, our ally to the north, to be doing uh, as they are getting ready to create a psychedelics industry? Yeah, great question. I would say all of it. <laughs> um, <you> know, <laughs> so, Excellent. Yeah, i i was re- I was happy to read those paragraphs in the article. Um, as I've mentioned many times on the show before, I have massive Canada envy in general as far as the amount of research dollars that the country puts into cannabis research. And, you know, when I was invited to review the Health Canada grants, I was just like drooling. <laughs> uh, so, I, you know, Canada has done a remarkable job from that standpoint with cannabis, even if it was a little bit behind, uh, they certainly put their money where their mouth was and and handed out you know these massive research grants for safety effectiveness i think it was like 10 different indications effects on ad- indigenous populations i just thought it was beautifully done and because of that in the next 5 to 10 years we're going to get so much data on what works for what condition and how safe is it in all different scenarios so i would love to see that happen, you know, follow suit, um, with the psychedelics. Um, 
And and just a quickly another quick point. We talked about this uh, on a previous episode, whether or not there are some like ethics issues involved with companies collaborating with academic institutions. And I believe I had said previously, I actually think that should be a requirement. Uh, we should hold these companies to a standard that they are involved in a certain level of research, um, you know, if they want to to play in that market. And maybe that will help to not have this explosion of companies that think they're going to do amazing things and then tank because they don't have the right kind of <laughs> plan put in place. I can't agree more with that, Sarah. I mean, you know, I'm seeing the stuff that's happening in the cannabis space where it's like there's a vacuum of information. And, you know, I was just reading quotes of the day, for example, about Delta 8 THC, where people are like, it doesn't get you high. It just stimulates cannabinoid receptors and causes euphoria. And I was like, wow, like what a statement. Um, and I and I worry about that with psychedelics because people might be like, here's a non-psychotropic version, you know, or or like this won't get you high, it just causes hallucinations. And you're like, what? <laughs> um, so you know, I think you're right. Like for me, that product safety aspect is, you know, let's get something standardized that you can rely on for for a reproducible effect. Cause, you know, one of the things I've learned from talking to you, and then it seems like one of the greatest ways to, pre to prevent problematic use is, is being able to know what the products are going to do, right? So if like, you know, you have to take this much effect, you know, this much of a product to get the effect, your chances of you overshooting it are, are much less. Um, you know, Graham, I would like to ask you a couple questions, so many questions, but, you know, this, this comes up all the time. In a federally controlled substance you want to patent it. Like if I want to say go to Canada right now ahead of them doing any sort of movement to, to improve the regulations there. And I wanted to patent like, I don't know, I'm just going to make up something that's totally fake, right? Like uh, patenting psilocybin for the treatment of like dealing with your in-laws during the holidays. Like it's the cure for like being around your in-laws on the holidays. And I'd like to patent that, you know, can I patent a, uh, get a patent out on something that has very little data or is illegal, you know, like, like could you could you clarify that a little bit for me? Cause I could see people looking at the, what's happening in Canada being like, Oh, we got to patent some stuff in Canada right now because it's, it's a hotbed. Yeah. And I, I think actually that's a good enough idea that I would not be too surprised if somebody has included something <laughs> like that in an application Although I, I'm wondering if it's better given to me to deal with my in-laws or given to my in-laws so I don't have to deal with them. Um, but yeah, I mean, both of those are very good questions and questions that I get a lot. Um, to, I guess to answer your second one, there's no um, prohibition against patenting things that are federally illegal. I mean, that's not entirely true. There are some very narrow ones to like nuclear weapons and certain things uh -huh. that can be used in bioterrorism. But as the far old, as drugs uh, go, <laughs> yeah, the old hash bomb. <laughs> yeah, got it. Sorry, yeah, yeah. continue, please. But, but anything that's a violation of you know the Controlled Substances Act, um, there's no problem filing for a patent application on that. And so you know there there have been thousands of applications filed with cannabis you know, while it's still federally illegal, and many hundreds filed around um, illegal still uh, other drug substances like psychedelics. Um, oh, fascinating. That's that's not yeah. It's not universally true with all IP. So like trademarks, you know, it's a separate question. There's issues around getting a trademark because a trademark has to be lawfully used in commerce. So it can't you can't trademark 
a psychedelic or cannabis, but you can file a patent application. So, um, so like, okay. So that, that there's no little limit to that per se. Like I could be like, I want a patent for growing mush psychedelic mushrooms in space. And I want to patent that idea and that concept. Like it's, it's the production of a schedule one drug, but it's just a, a theory, right? It's not an art. Yeah. It's just a theory. So there's, Am I getting that right? Would you say conceptually? Yeah, you're you're getting that right. So yeah, so there's, I mean, as long as somebody can demonstrate that the invention they claim is able to be made and used based on what's in the application, that's all you need. It doesn't matter that making it or using it, you know, with these kind of minimal exceptions I mentioned involving typically war um, or, you know, the violation of something that could involve national security. Um, if it's drugs, it, it doesn't matter. So yeah, your your new way of um, making bathtub methamphetamines, you can get a patent application on that, and wow. um, you know you can have back and forth with the patent examiner for you know as many times as it need discussing whether or not that's actually uh, you know a viable way to do it. Um, as oh. to your other question about whether you can do it without having much data, the answer differs a little bit by country. The U.S. has a very, very low bar. Um, you can have something in an application called a prophetic example, which is exactly what the word is. It's just a prophecy of what the results may be. So it can be just like the design of an application. I mean, the design of a sort of the research that you would do and what the data might look like if you were able to do it. And as long as somebody following that research plan could potentially get those results, and, you know, you may have an opportunity during prosecution to sort of get a chance to run it, but you don't necessarily even have to. Uh, as long as you set forth some way to show how somebody could do it, that can be enough. Um, the bar is a little higher in some other countries, especially in the EU and UK. So somebody, you know, who's thinking about filing around the world may have to make a little bit of a higher uh, showing with some data. But there's some applications I've seen with, with, with really no data whatsoever, as long as Somebody can, again, make and use the application. That's enough. Awesome. Thank you, Graham. All right. Well, I think we're going to move on to our, our next topic here. And seeing no further comments, uh, we're going to move into one of the things that you know I actually practiced growing up, but not as intensely. But this is about meditation. And this article is entitled, Lost in Thought, The Psychological Risks of Meditation. And when I first read this title, I was like, Oh, give me a break. But as I dove into the subject, it started to make sense. Dots I had never connected before about meditation. And we're not just talking about the 20 minutes a day meditation. This is some practices that involve hours and hours and hours and hours a week of practice. And, you know, the Buddhist ascetics who took up meditation in the 5th century BC did not view it as a form of stress release. And in this article from Harper's Magazine, it discusses these practices were actually invented for people to renounce possessions, social positions, wealth, family, comfort, and work. And, you know, monks and nuns sought to transcend the world, not to, you know, deal better with their kids' little league games. And so as the world moves forward with psychedelics wellness centers, when I read this article, I thought about psychosis and the use of other drugs in that association, whether it's cannabis, whether it's psychedelics. And here we have meditation, the seemingly benign practice, which just spoke to like these awesome powers of the human mind. And then just kind of reinforced to me that, you know, <laughs> that everything that has a benefit 
has a risk. And while I would love to be able to do an animal study having like rats meditate and look at the rats that didn't and compare that to drug use, I mean, I found this article to be really fascinating from Harper's Magazine. And Sarah, I would love to get, you know, as a researcher who studies drugs and combining drugs, you know, one thing I kind of wanted to prompt you with was this makes me, this, this, this research about the psychological risks of certain meditation practices, it makes me wonder about an unspoken risk, an unaddressed risk with combining psychedelics with a six-hour meditation with a counselor. Because that sounds like a recipe, not just for ego dissolution, but like really getting lost in your own brain. And it maybe has nothing to do or less to do with the psychedelic than with the intense meditation practice. Um, like, but I'd love to hear your thoughts on this article. Yeah, I think this is a must read for anybody listening to this podcast. This article was so cool. And it touches upon so many conversations we've had in past episodes about ego dissolution. And what is it about that? I remember mentioning previously that I felt like, you know, I've been paying hundreds of dollars a month for therapy and I feel cheated if somebody gets to use a psychedelic and achieve the same level of ego dissolution that I'm trying to in, in group therapy. Um, but, it, you know, it does. It, it sort of hits home on, you know, drugs do things to the brain because the brain is capable of making amazing changes and and functioning in a way that we're not familiar with in our daily lives in our current society. Um, and so as with all drugs, there is some level of toxicity and harm with behaviors. It's great to, you know, have a simple jogging regimen every week, but is it, you know, there are, there are, you can go in excess with many behaviors uh, the other thing that I thought about in reading about this was two points that are familiar to me when talking about cannabis and more recently uh, psychedelics. Just because something is natural doesn't mean it's safe. And so I think, you know, some of us, I, I, you hear this argument with cannabis, with psychedelics, it's a natural product, it's safe. It's like, well, you know, the 10 most toxic substances on the planet are natural products. Um, and again, with something like meditation, some people who might poo-poo using drugs, like in this article talking about taking Xanax or or taking something for your bipolar. It'll be much safer if you go meditate by yourself in a dark room for a week. Uh, you know, so I think it, it points out that, so, you know, even though you might think that something seems natural, there could be harms. The other thing touching upon cannabis and psychedelic use, just because people have been doing something for centuries doesn't mean it's safe or necessarily a good idea. So I think it's important to have conversations about some of these things, especially as they get trendy and they sound like, I want to be the kind of person to go on a retreat. And that sounds really cool, you know, to look into, are there any, you know, sort of inherent harms with that? And then lastly, the other thing that it pointed out to me is, you know, some people feel so passionately about certain things like cannabis or psychedelics because they have very positive experiences with them. But that doesn't mean that everybody under every situation will have positive experiences and that there aren't cases 
where there can be adverse effects. So I love the idea of, you know, really looking into and paying attention to the potential adverse effects, especially of trendy things that maybe sound more safe because they sound, you know, all Zen <laughs> as opposed to, to drug use. So those are my thoughts on the article. But it was a wonderful pick. Yeah, a- absolutely. And, um, you know, I think this is points out even the, like a clear reason why we need psychedelic therapist education. And I don't remember the last time I saw, I've seen a lot of CME talks, haven't seen one on meditation. Um, but yeah, you know what? Our, we make a lot of drugs. Like the human brain can make things like DMT and stuff. So it's no surprise that, you know, we might be able to trigger some of those innate things through intense processes that, again, have been in consistent practice since 300 years BC. And yeah, there's a lot of stupid things people have done for centuries. Um, you know, follow leaders blindly things like that we just see transcending human history. Um, uh, Graham, you know, uh, you must see a lot of patents on meditation. <laughs> I got to wonder, have, and has anyone pointed out the risks of meditation and psychedelic use in any patents? Or, you know, is, I, I just got to wonder, like, you know, if you, if I guess, let me, let me rephrase the question. If I came to you and I said, I want a patent, some sort of meditation practice, and you knew about this research, is it something you'd bring up to a client? Or do you just let them, you know, what, what do you do with this information as a patent attorney when you're, you know, if you were making a decision about a product? Well, I mean, I think knowing that this is out there, I may talk with a client if they've considered it, because it seems like a patent on meditation would be much stronger if there was a way to have a method in there that could avoid a meditator running into these sorts of problems. So that would certainly be something on my mind. And, you know, those are the things to look for when trying to come up with the benefits that could be in a patent. But yeah, I was very surprised to see, I think in one of the studies here, it said, I mean, it was like over two thirds of the meditators that had pretty significant problems and 10 of them are hospitalized. And I, I, I felt like I was pretty familiar with meditation. My, my father actually is a longtime Zen meditator. I've done a little bit myself, although not very intensely. The thing that this brought to my mind, and maybe it was in the article, but like it's whether the meditation was the harm related to the altered state of consciousness itself or the sort of reevaluation of one's life that that altered state of consciousness makes possible. So I know like, you know, the main character in this article, um, she had had some issues that sort of brought her to the meditation, a breakup and a move and some sort of big life changes. And one of the things that I think is, uh, you know, problematic with psychedelics, it's not being addressed as much as it could be right now is the fact that people have these mental health issues because of the world around them and the context they're in. And just taking psychedelics is not going to make that better. In fact, it may just make people realize how much their life needs to be improved and needs to be changed. And somebody coming face to face with that without the barriers that one throws up by taking psychedelics or meditating might be a pretty traumatic experience for somebody and, and causes kind of um, problems. So yeah, it's, it's definitely a risk. And, and so I'm, I, I would be curious to see if it's something about the actual altered state of consciousness just in itself or something about the way that altered state of consciousness opens one up to really reevaluating their life situation. So maybe this isn't a problem you can just throw more drugs at, uh, that this might be um, a way for people to maybe actually come face to face with things they've been filtering out. 
And and that can be scary, I think. And then we talk about ego dissolution and coming to... And we've heard about this. We did some articles in the past episodes about the, the science of bad trips and whether or not they're really bad. Um, and, and there's some interesting things where people run away from the bad feelings and psychedelics. It only seems to make it worse. And so I wonder, you know, what's going on? And and I mean, um, we read, you know, it's all a science fiction about people getting trapped in their minds and things like that. But you said something really cool that I actually want to ask Nigam about. And you mentioned specific practice to prevent these effects, like putting in guardrails for meditation, like do like, you know, it's like Viagra. If you're meditating for, for more than four hours a day, contact a doctor. <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, Nick, if I want to get your thoughts on this um, in terms of the article, you know, um, it's you know, and just some some comments there. Um, you know, I know you're a numbers guy. Sometimes you look at like the methods being used, the number of people involved in a study. But just just some some quick thoughts you'd like to share uh, about this article. Uh, yeah. Well, uh, one thing that I just wanted to shout out was that there's a lot of styles of meditation. So, uh, they're speaking a lot here about this Vipassana type of meditation. And the other thing is just like, these all seem to be like kind of long. These are like long sessions. I mean, these people are intentionally meditating for, I mean, Jehan's making the, the Viagra joke, which I thought was kind of funny, but, um, you know, they're meditating for six or eight or 10 hours a day. Um, wow. You know, uh, that's pretty intense. So that's one thing. The other thing is like, um, yeah, there were like several, you know, anecdotes in this article and, uh, Jehan had even shared another article with the group. We'll, we'll post them both on the show notes, but it's kind of interesting. I do. I am critical of like the end numbers and studies, right? Because as Jahan's pointing out, we'll see these studies and they'll draw some conclusion and have some fancy title and there's like 12 participants and it really is not meaningful, but I've said this before and I'll say it again on the flip side, the anecdotal evidence, the experiential evidence from N of one that that does matter. It really matters a lot. Um, so anyways, um, just kind of witnessing how many people had had some of these severe reactions and reactions that like lasted into the future. It wasn't like I meditated, I had a bad experience. I felt better the next day. It wasn't it's, it's like, not like taking too many edibles one night. The next day you're a little groggy. It's like, weeks later months later right yeah yeah and they're talking about people having to like go to the hospital or having like mental ills moving forward and all this stuff so i oh, i guess wow. yeah to to i agree with sarah like anybody who's listening to the show who likes this kind of stuff we talk about you know psychedelics how they work in the brain the other ways that the brain works without the drugs um i agree it's a total must read so just to kind of cap um get off my psychedelics box is that um or to get off my uh you know meditation box or whatever um i think really the best the largest takeaway i got from this was just the extreme like uh i didn't even know how to phrase it i want to say strength or uh, malleability or depth or 
connectedness of the human mind. And, you know, you hear this thing in, in school or whatever. Oh, you only ever use 10% of your brain. And if you're a super genius, you might use 12% of your brain or whatever. Well, this is what happens when people go into their brain for like 10 hours a day for like days on end. Um, and as Graham even highlighted some of it, it's like not an uncommon thing. So anyways, um, yeah, it, it, to me, just the depth, the strength of the human mind and like what we still have left to learn, what it can still do. Um, it's a lot of cool stuff to come. I, I agree with that. Nigga. Great comments, everyone. And I have one last thing I'm going to pitch the group. And, and, you know, if you don't have a response for it, just consider it a little Dr. Mark who's mind munchy food for thought. But after reading this article, I, I contemplated it for a couple of days because it really, it, it really challenged some assumptions I had about meditation and things. And then I started to think, what is enlightenment that these monks have been pursuing for, for thousands of years, right? And could enlightenment be a type of psychosis? I mean, you know, you're giving up social status, wealth, comfort, uh, the outside world. You know, you'd have to be pretty focused and obsessed to reach that level. So, I mean, and I'm just saying in an objective sense, you know, psychosis, eh, you know, if you're in a monastery, maybe it's not such a bad thing. I don't know. Um, I'm not a monk, but I think, you know, one thing for certain is that definitions change over time. Uh, what is enlightenment perhaps has changed over time. What is insanity has changed over time. And so, you know, I'm one, I'm interested to see, you know, potentially how our understanding and definitions of psychosis might change because it just seems uh, to be getting broader and broader and broader. And I'm seeing psychosis everywhere now <laughs> in the literature. Well, while meditation may help you deal or not deal with the current state of affairs, looking into the future for smokable CBD products doesn't seem to be great, according to the law firm Harris Bricken, which published on their Canna Law blog. And that's not just blah, blah, blah. That's Canna Law blog um, about the future of smokable CBD products is not great. And that's because California is proposing a law that would ban all smokable hemp products, including vapes. There's a lot of backlash already. But I mean, you've heard us on this show before, listener, uh, if you're a longtime listener, you know, talking about FDA warning letters and going through all the insanity around that. Um, but Graham, I wanted to ask you about, um, let's say you had a client who had an existing patent on a hemp CBD vape, and then suddenly that product starts to get banned what what do you do uh, or, or does it does it affect the patent at all you know i'm not a lawyer i'm just uh sometimes i sound like one when i talk about science in the cannabis space but i, I guess i'm just kind of curious like you know if i went through all the trouble finding this like hemp vape patent and then it's getting banned you know what can i do um you know you can't you can't you know there's no patent protection on the illicit market so i just let to get your response to this article yeah, I mean, this article made me think again about how just complex the regulatory system is with all these products and such a mess and tangle. I mean, I, I think as a patent lawyer, um, you know, one would hope to try to think ahead to situations like this when filing a patent and hopefully not limit the application to something as narrow as just smokable hemp, but put as much in there as possible. And, you know, one of the ways I think patent lawyers can offer the most value is helping the client to brainstorm all the possible 
um, things that can go into a patent that can be alternatives and different embodiments and different ways of doing something. So hopefully something like this doesn't happen that really undercuts the value, um, you know, at least in one state, if the value is measured by how many products could be infringing from a competitor or how much you can protect with your patent that you're selling. Um, so, you know, that's, that's probably also reflected if you've been seeing some of these patents, you often see some that are very broad or cover a lot of things that are probably outside of what you may think the applicant themselves is doing. And part of that is to sort of avoid something like this happening. But yeah, if I, if I had a client that I helped write an application on smokable hemp, uh, they'd probably be upset if I, you know, left something out of there and they could no longer <laughs> use that patent to, to sell something. So yeah, I'm hoping to be creative when uh, when filing applications. Excellent. Um, yeah, Negam, you've worked in the formulation area. Um, no, no uh, stranger to all the strange products out there and all the issues in the industry. Did you find this surprising, or, or you're like, yeah, it's about time? Well. Man, I, I almost want to pass on this uh, because I feel like my... Let, let me try to say something PC about vapes and how I feel about them. Um, I think that there's a lot of unknown stuff about vapes. I think that there is a reasonable way uh, to go about regulating them. Some of the things that state-by-state state regulators have done with vapes, um, some of the things that... And I'm speaking about in like the regulated THC markets, uh, some of the things that researchers are doing with vapes, like more closely examining heavy metals, more closely examining, um, you know, other potential toxins that are uh, created when, uh, you know, stuff that is, you know, food grade, but not really intended to be like vaporized and inhaled. Like what is what is happening? What are the effects? Um, this kind of stuff I, I'm absolutely in favor of and building understanding of, you know, what is this and how is it affecting, you know, human physiology and health, all of that I'm behind. Um, but I got to say that other than those, you know, positive things that I just said, um, there's a lot of stuff just like running rampant. You know, there's a lot of products that can, you know, bought and sold. They don't know what's in them. Consumers don't really have the full understanding of the, you know, what it's going to do to them anyways having said that this whole like sweeping thing about you can't mail a vaporizer in the united states is um it's damaging it's uh it, it's it's overreaching it's it's not helpful it's not the appropriate way to go about something like this so um i've highlighted a f I, i'm trying to like stay positive no nigam I, uh, I i totally agree with you this yeah. is this is going from a bad situation to a potentially worse one i mean you know it's like I, I try to think about this, you know, and again, as for people um, who don't know, you know, I'm on PAX's health advisory board. So I have a clear bias here for pure, like herbal vaporizers and making sure they're safe, making sure they're done properly, making sure there's controls um, in them. And if they can't ship them, you know, how is the university that's studying them going to get them? You know, how are they going to be used in a clinical study? Like, and so my first thought was not about the consumer. It's like, what about all this goddamn clinical work we need to do? How are we going to get these, these products there? And they're not nicotine delivery devices. So, um, you know, I think like I understand the intent. Like, hey, let's prevent some cigarette trafficking. Let's prevent that kid who somehow opens up a bank account, gets their parents' credit card, has a place to order and ship them, gets through the age validation. Like, you, know, you have to commit a few felonies as a teenager, but you could eventually get these shipped to you, uh, including identity theft and, and fraud and things like that. But 
I got to wonder if this just means that people are going to be hanging outside corner stores to get these versus having them delivered to their home. Does it really address the problem? Is it window dressing? Well, um, Jay Hondo, you, you and I had, uh, just to share with the listeners, uh, you and I had this kind of side discussion about this topic. And um, you said to me, how does an honest business person get it? And I say, well, you can't mail it. You got to ship it on a truck. And you say, from where? And like, literally, it needs to come on a boat and then go in a truck and then go to a corner store and then or a gas station. And how is that safer? How is that helping anybody? You know, we're just pushing it. It's just such a such an insanity when legalization and research is all happening. And then it's like, let's just push this thing underground. It's it just it, it's silly. So sorry, I had to just share that. Yeah, and it, it's it's Sarah. Do you? When you see this type of stuff, do you think it helps or hurts? Or, I mean, yeah, just your response. I know you're not, uh, you know, a big policy wonk, but you know, you're familiar with, you know, the research out there about access to substances, no access to substances. Here, we're trying to get, you know, it's like having heroin but no syringes around. I know it's a really bizarre, not maybe not super appropriate comment, but just to drive it home to the listener, this this is like, I think it's a looming. This could fast track a public health crisis. Now people might be going back and building their own vapes again. I mean, I found pictures of people building their own vaporizers that were like the size of their head, like these giant like e-cigarette things. Um, but yeah, Sarah, just share with us some thoughts about this. And then Graham, I'd like to follow up with you about um, some other inhalable patents. Yeah. So again, this article made me extremely angry uh, for many reasons. Um, you know, ever since the, you know, the last big crisis we had before COVID was the jewel crisis. And being someone who, um, you know, w- was a cigarette smoker and turned to, you know, vaping product to not smoke cigarettes, I, I feel this immense frustration with the conflation of so many different things. And sometimes I don't know if there's like intentional disinformation given to the public or, we think that the public can't understand scientific information if it's laid out to them, but lost in all of these conversations are what are we talking about is the harm because your average Joe on the street isn't going to understand. Is it the device? Is it CBD? Is it the stuff, the oil that it's dissolved in? Um, and, you know, I, going back to what you and Nigam said, well, let's let's just not talk about that and get rid of it all instead of really diving into what the potential dangers are. Let's research them, try to figure out a safer alternative. I'm just frustrated in, in general about the whole topic of vaping because I think no one is really being clear about what is known what is not known, what, you know, what are the harms and the real concerns? There's so much, um, you know. Yeah, Sarah, I would agree with you that. You mean? know, <laughs> the best way to, you know, the, you know, some, it took, it was a hard concept for me to get, cause I started off on the therapeutic side of cannabis research. I'm like, well, it's therapeutic. Why do we need to know the risks? It's to maximize the safety end. Cause if you know the risks, you can avoid that landmine. Like, and that's what frustrated me too about the vape crisis is, you know, we talk about, you know, I brought this thing 10 years ago about propylene glycol. And it was just to say, we need to understand the risks. 
And people lost their goddamn mind. Well, let's stop using it. Let's use stuff that we has we have no information about because that'll be safer. And we have these regrettable substitutions until we get to a very regrettable substitution. And so sometimes the point of talking about risks it is, like you said, to educate them and find the safer way to use those products. When are they safe? How much exposure? Um, you know, dosing over time. These sorts of things are, are really important. Um, but to round out this article, Graham, and before we go to the next one, which I'm really looking forward to speaking with you about, I wanted to ask you a little bit, um, just off the top of your head, do you have one or two like inhalable product patents that come to mind uh, that may or may not be on the market? Yeah, well, one of the ones that actually came to mind just after I um, had my last comment about how patent lawyers would be remiss to not be creative about what they put in an application, Philip Morris has close to 60 patents or patent applications on vapes. And in there, they list just about everything you could imagine being in a vape and many things you probably couldn't, but they have like DMT and 5-MeO-DMT, which I'd like to get my hands on a Philip Morris um, product like that, but I don't imagine they'll be selling anytime soon. But they also list like just every phenethylamine and tryptamine, but, but other things too, anti-asthmatic drugs, anti-angina drugs, well, butrin. I mean, the, the hundreds of different things. Uh, if so I don't you know can't where they smoke it, this list. you don't need it. <laughs> I think that's probably the philosophy they went with. Um, <laughs> that's amazing, well, that's, Graham. That is the business they're in, right? They want you to smoke it, right? So it's like, yeah, you know what? That, yeah, if people could smoke their insulin, I bet diabetics <laughs> would be like administering it more often and in more uh, controlled doses. Um, I, I should do a word sure. search in their patent because I'd be surprised if it's not in there. That. that might be a good time to say the disclaimer, but go go ahead, Graham. Fin fin please finish. <laughs> I would say, yeah, just real quick, listener. We don't endorse any uh, treatment or product, and you know, if you're going to smoke your insulin, please consult your physician. Um, you know, that is not none of these things we're talking about are FDA approved. No, although I, although I will say, as a diabetic myself, if I could smoke my insulin, I probably would be. <laughs> <laughs> Well, Sorry, Graham, uh, can I give you a dollar right now by Venmo so you can uh, become my patent attorney <laughs> and just legally speaking, we can get that rolling. Um, well, speaking of combining things, I think this is a great segue to our last uh, article from the popular literature. Um, and that comes to us from futurehuman.medium.com. And I first heard about the sto story entitled, A Biotech Startup Won a Patent to Combine Elements of weed and psychedelics. And I started to think about this as like, gosh, I was just asking the question a couple weeks ago, could someone please do some research on the effects of psychedelics on the endocannabinoid system? What's happening there? And people are already off the races panting. And I got to wonder if like the next step, people are just going to be starting to do like weird, like broader and broader patents. Like, hey, I'm going to patent taking drugs by the handful. Whatever you have in your hand and you put it in your mouth, that's my patented treatment. Because I, I just feel like people are going to parties you know, and being like, oh, what are people taking? Oh, yeah, we'll patent that. Um, but, you know, Sarah, I think I want to want to go to you first uh, on this because, you know, your, a lot of your work has been on drug combinations. And some of the stuff I've read about cannabis and psychedelics, sometimes people, for example, will use cannabis with psychedelics to prolong certain effects. Like as the psychedelics kind of start to taper off and you... You know, people like report these like rolling hallucinations where you're like wavering in between the two realities. Then you have a little bit of cannabis that can kind of put you back in between them. Um, so, you know, 
I got to wonder, like, are you take you know taking these things at the same time? Is there a time interval? I have tons of questions like that, but I just wanted to kind of get your response, just overall to this to this article again, as someone who's you know had a pretty successful career studying drug combinations. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so for me, that interest started in my PhD work where I studied cocaine and heroin, and trying to model in animals why people might speedball. And, you know, there are many theories um, and maybe there are different reasons why different people use two different types of drug, especially, you know, drugs with opposing actions. Um, You know, so from a recreational standpoint, I've investigated that and you can think of, you know, obvious reasons why people may mix uh, two drugs together. Um, simply, as you mentioned, like being at a party, one theory is that if you buy your drugs from a drug dealer who also sells other drugs, you may just start using different drugs together all the way to, you know, enhancing one drug effect or trying to curtail, you know, one drug effect with another. My Most of my research with cannabinoids focuses on therapeutically, it doesn't make sense to combine them. So this so-called entourage effect. And when I first learned about the entourage effect and I saw people really passionate about it, I went into the literature and found that there was almost no research as to whether it was real. Um, and you know, the, the theories behind it are either one, two components of the plant together produce a better effect, a more enhanced effect, or one of them, again, cuts down potentially like CBD, potentially cutting down on the adverse effects of THC. So it's very complex actually to study even in one drug. So the thought that cannabis has hundreds of chemicals in it, psychedelics may have hundreds of chemicals in them. And then thinking about potential entourage effects of those in combination um, sounds like, whoa, baby, baby, baby steps in that. And coming again from, you know, I think about these things from a therapeutic perspective, you need to study effectiveness. Is there any benefit? Like you mentioned, Jehan, prolonged action you know, is there anything therapeutically that's beneficial about that? And then adverse effects, do they potentiate each other's adverse effects or does one of them cut down on the other? So I feel like, um, you know, a lot of preclinical work, like decades of preclinical work, um, I would like to see to to support a notion that something like that makes sense before you just jump into it and say, if some people like this class of drugs and some people like this class of drugs, let's mix them together. You know, I appreciate it. And it's, it's hard to say if, you know, this cannabis cell Simon patent will deliver the moon for this company. Um, you know, uh, but maybe it might give people the tools to figure out what's going on and, and maybe they'll create that standardized preparation, you know, and it becomes a valuable research tool and not so much a great product. Um, but, you know, I'm interested to see with, you know, how that pans out and Graham, you know, were you surprised that this sort of patent was handed out or you're like, yeah, this seems pretty much a buy the book play for a patent. Well, I guess to answer that, I should probably give you the background. So I, I know the 
inventor of the patent, Andrew Chatain, and a bit of his background. And, and, and knowing that, I think it's less of a surprise. So he was the, he himself is a patent lawyer, and he was one of the patent lawyers who was at EBU, who very successfully used their patent portfolio to be acquired by Canopy for, I think, close to 430 million Canadian. So I think this is kind of a similar play in that vein, filing patents to cover combinations of drugs now involving psychedelics with hopes of generating that kind of value to a potential inquirer. I mean, I don't know that that's actually his strategy, but but seeing how that strategy worked out in the past, that would be my expectation. Um, I mean, I, I did see that there was information in the article that indicated there may have been some synergy that's been shown. I know it said in the article that that wasn't um, made public and I, it's not something I've seen. So I'd be curious. I mean, my interest reading this too is, is in wondering how much uh, something like this will make it into a product, especially anytime soon. I mean, you know, we just talked about the article about legalization coming in Canada and, you know, when would we ever see something like this, make it on the, you know, the shelves of a dispensary. I don't, I don't know when that will be, but, um, but it's, it's interesting to to see that this is, this out there, but to me, it's not surprising kind of knowing how patents are being used in the psychedelic space. So potentially for companies. I've got fungus in my marijuana. <laughs> I've got <laughs> marijuana in my fungus. Aren't they aren't they doing testing for that, Jahan? Are they trying to keep those <laughs> things apart? Isn't there like hundreds of millions of dollars being spent on testing to keep these things apart? Yeah, now but but now we're gonna combine them. And patent it. Um and patent it. You know, I that, Graham, that's a fantastic point, actually. You know, if this is gonna be a combined drug, <laughs> You know, we have these like regulated, segregated markets of like products you can sell. I mean, I'm I'm still surprised it didn't separate cannabis flower shops from concentrate shops and having those sold separately at separate locations. Um, but uh, Nigam, what are your thoughts on this? I mean, my guests kind of want to get your sense, you know, because you've worked in the industry for so long. What's how would you even get a license to sell this with this? Like, <laughs> there's no Office of Psychedelics and Cannabis Licensing yet. I, yeah, I have a few. As, as per usual, I have a few thoughts, and I'll, I'll try to be brief just because uh, we're a little short on HLI time because we've just been having so much fun discussing these articles. But a few off the top. Um, Jahan, you have this great way of like sharing potent things in kind of like a light way. So when you say, oh, what are they doing? Just going to parties and blah, 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 and like seeing what people are doing. Well, there's some merit to that. And I always talk about this thing about the value of the knowledge built by the drug culture so you know society has this way of saying oh well that's that's bad that's not what we wrote in our little golden book about how humans and drugs should interact so no but the reality is people subcultures have understood that that's not really the that the letter of the law isn't really what matters it's how the substance interacts with the human how it benefits the human and the society and all this so um yeah i think people who are experienced users kind of already know that there's some potential symbiosis between certain psychedelics and certain cannabinoids and and so on and so forth. So I won't delve into that whole realm because everything Sarah said is really, really valid. Like there's so much work to do to even understand that. And then Jahan, just to cap with your other question, um, seems like uh, Camtech here is being very forward looking or maybe it's like what Graham said that it's just like uh, 
value perceived value now for acquisition move i i think that's a very reasonable thing for for graham to call out but um jayhan to your direct question when can anyone buy this wow um long time our lifetime yeah. Next uh, yeah, lifetime yeah 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 our lifetime but you know here's what i'm imagining it could be five ten years from now it could be like an fda approved drug that's like psilocybin and cbd or psilocin and cbd or something right maybe um the alternate could be in a place like oregon that is aiming to have psilocybin uh available for treatment legally i believe 2023 in the state cannabis is also legal there they're still building the regulatory body to regulate uh psilocybin and other psychedelics so maybe in like 2023 or 2024 or whatever in oregon maybe there's like some state regulated product but the point is not soon not this year not next year it's, it's going to be a while all right well that wraps it up thank you nigam for closing out the segment for our conversation here we're going to take a short break and come back with our rapid fire science segment hello i'm rod kite from kite law legal advocacy for a burgeoning industry you can reach us at cannabusiness.law or directly rod at cannabusiness.law And we're back with Rapid Fire Science, where we go around providing brief commentary and discussion about the peer-reviewed science articles. Our first article is from the State Local Government Review. It's a research journal peer-reviewed about government stuff. Um, And this one's called The Consequences of Fickle Federal Policy. A bit of a tongue twister there, but it discusses administrative hurdles for state cannabis policies, you know, things like banking and social equity and things like that. Um, you know, Graham, you have, have a legal background, um, you know, just kind of scanning this article. Did anything leap out at you? Like, did you think like, oh, they hit the nail on the head or uh, this is this is just more of the same stuff we hear about the federal government's position on cannabis? Uh, show us your thoughts. Uh about this article? I mean, this article made me thankful, I guess, that as a lawyer, that we have such confusion in our government, because if it wasn't for that, I mean, there'd be a lot less jobs for cannabis lawyers in particular. Um, I mean, I don't, I don't work in this regulatory aspect, but as kind of a cannabis lawyer myself, I find it overwhelming to try to keep up with all of this. Huh. And the sort of downstream effects are some of what was most surprising to me, I mean, I saw something in here that said Alaska wanted to have plane and boat delivery of cannabis and decided to rescind the guidance permitting that because they were worried about how that would interplay with federal law. And I just thought like, you know, trying to think through all the implications of the law is kind of crazy. Um, I also thought, you know, the way it ended by saying, we're not really sure how to sort of like categorize this, um, confusion into like these different types of federalism also made me realize it's crazy to try to put like an academic bucket into what's been going on. It's just, I mean, it really is just kind of, I think a singular sort of situation. And I, I, it makes me wonder how psychedelics will play out too. I mean, I, I can only imagine with the mix of therapeutic sort of legalization and decriminalization and, I mean, perhaps recreation, um, 
psychedelics is going to be just just as difficult as cannabis to regulate and just as much space for lawyers to find employment. Absolutely. You know, I, I thought it was really funny what you said about how this, you know, gives gives lawyers more things to do. And uh, hey, for once, I guess the government is creating more jobs with its inefficiencies. Um, so, um, you know, Nick, I'm, you know, as someone who's had experience in academia and the industry, um, and, and, you know, you've, you've done some stuff around uh, advocacy, whether that's with professionals in the space or, or policy and things like that. Um, you know, well, what do you think of the federal government's wait and see approach uh, after checking this article out? Well, you know, <laughs> well, it's extremely inefficient, which Graham highlighted some of the niche economic opportunities uh, which I think is pretty insightful. But anyways, I'm just going to share with, with uh, the listeners what happened to me uh, when I read this article, and I think it'll answer your question. Um, I read the title, and then I read the abstract, and then I thought, wow, uh, this is my life. And how, uh, you know, it's just, it's just um, th- here's like a good way I can explain it. Like, we played this Where's Valancourt game when Dave's on the show. And we always say, like, we're exemplifying the nuance of, like, you can see everything that's going on. It's like, oh, was he in a state? Oh, was it, you know, rec legal? Was it med legal? Is it, was it hemp? Was it an oil? Was it full spectrum? Was it, you know, a uh, metal-filled vaporizer cartridge? <laughs> like, all this stuff. So, um, in the point of that game is it exemplifies like all the, all these nuance and the depth and all just like the crazy different things happening because of the segmented regulation. So anyways, um, so when I read the abstract of this paper, I thought, wow, you know, my God, uh, I live this every single day as do most, uh, thoughtful professionals in the space. And Jesus, you know, it's like, I'm just, uh, it's like a little bit painful. I'm going to be honest. I did not, uh, read every word of this because it's just, man, like what a, what a quagmire we're in, you know? Also, uh, just a little fun tidbit, Graham. I didn't actually catch that thing about Alaska, but it makes a lot of sense. You know, I'm in San Francisco and I'll talk to my friends, you know, all around the country and I'll say to them, Oh yeah, I'm just getting some cannabis delivered like a pizza. And then they're like, Oh, what do you mean? Like a pizza? And I'm like, what do you mean? I call. And then like an hour later, it comes up hot, you know, it's, it's right there. So, but in Alaska, you know, plane transport is like a real thing people don't have cars they have like um planes that you can land on the water and stuff so why should it be illegal to deliver cannabis or psychedelics for therapeutic purposes with a plane in alaska i think that should be fine so anyways jayhan i don't know if that's a response you wanted but i'm uh it's it's just a day by it's just a day by day frustration for all of us you know yeah for those of us who've kind of lived it you know i don't it was it was was an article that i I skimmed very quickly and read very quickly because, you know, I've talked about the Ogman memo, you know, and all these things that have happened in this thing for years. And um, half the time, people don't know what the heck you're talking about. But there are some things that they, I think they gloss over, you know, when, when like the, you know, the Cole memo and the Ogden memo came out, I remember like it was like 2013, 2014 or something. And like the industry just went crazy. They're like, woohoo, the war's over. Everybody come out and like put down your arms, uh, you know, cannabis to plowshares. And like, it was just such a bad idea. I feel like, like they went cra- little, they lost sight of the, the prize. Um, but 
you know, I, I think the government's fickleness is, is fading. You know, there's, there's restructuring happening at the FDA. Um, and I think there's restructuring happening at the DEA. You know, the DEA no longer says on their website that a single exposure to cannabis will irreversibly damage your brain. It's progress. Um, they're not rating cannabis operations like they were under Obama. Um, you know, so things, things, the landscape is, is changing. But, you know, Sarah is a researcher. It's got to be a weird place to be with the federal government being fickle because your research licenses in some way depend on the federal government granting them. And, and this challenge of them having tolerance and then not tolerance. And how, how do you navigate this stuff as a researcher, like trying to generate objective data? I mean, do you, is this a, you know, I guess you can't really ask for forgiveness if you're working with drugs, right? And you have a license, you have to ask for it up front. <laughs> Asked to do it up front. I, I don't know. I just I'm just trying to figure out how to ask you about this really um, this, this policy article. But you know, I'd love to hear your thoughts. Yeah, yeah. So you know, the obvious challenge for those of us that are at large research institutions and are studying cannabinoids is that we can study cannabinoids that we can obtain through federally legal means. And that's possible. I can buy THC and CBD with my Schedule One drug license, but I can't talk to uh, a owner of a dispensary or a manufacturer uh, in the state of Pennsylvania who has different formulations that they're interested in knowing the efficacy or safety, I can't collaborate with them and bring their state legal but federally illegal products into my laboratory. And so that's the biggest impact that is placed on researchers like us who know that we could learn so much more and do so much of a positive service you know, I can criticize industry for not caring enough about research, but at the same time, I can't help them either, even when they are interested, uh, you know, if it's a product that they grow that is not, you know, if they don't have a Schedule One drug license for their operation, we can't, you know, play together. And I think just the other disservice that it does is it, I think it perpetuates the stigma, both in the medical profession, I think, Doctors are still, uh, not all obviously, but some doctors are still late to embracing or trying to learn more about medical cannabis. Um, and I think this state by state regulation, again, helps to obfuscate things and confuse the public. And in some ways, it's been a big improvement in people's um, availability to cannabis within states, but in some ways, this disconnect between different states and between states and the government still, I think, also feeds into stigma and and other you know misinformation about cannabis. Absolutely. Um, so, you know, I wonder about whether or not this fickleness will change with the federal government. Um, but, you know, we'll see. So, listener, if you have a chance to check out this article, it has a cool figure about the adoption of medical and recreational cannabis by states from 1996 to 2020. Um, this is actually an article I used for my finance and regulation 
in the cannabis industry course. I had gave this to my students as one of their background papers for writing um, uh, some things about the Cole memo and, and the differences between plant touching and ancillary services in the cannabis industry was one of their assignments. So I thought this would be a great one for us to discuss. Um, so, so plowing ahead to the uh, next article, um, you know, the this one I thought was really cool. The neural correlates of the shamanic state of consciousness, which um, I believe was published um, in Frontiers in Human Neuroscience. Now, what I think this study was about was they had shamanic practitioners and healthy controls, and they were measuring brain waves, EEG data, uh, just brainwave data and stuff like that. Um, while the practitioners, shamanic practitioners, were sort of displaying um, their thing, you know, drumming and um, them doing their their shamanic stick or routine with uh, the healthy controls. And I thought this was really interesting because it's a non-pharmacological alteration in consciousness. You're kind of in theme with our uh, meditation article, you know, so there were brain related changes during um, the shamanic trance compared to previous literature in investigating different states. So Sarah, I, am I getting that right about this article? Is that what it seems to be about? Um, I, I read through it once um, and I thought it was pretty cool, but again, I kind of wanted to get your thoughts um, on this article. You know, it seemed like they had this study where it was like cognitive tests, some drumming, some music, mm-hmm. uh, or they you listen to music first, then drumming. Um, it was pretty. It was really interesting the way they kind of designed the study and measured brain waves. Um, but yeah, please your your response to this data. Yeah, and then the other piece that they did was sort of compare it to previous data from their laboratory of people using psychedelics. And that was really what I was the most interested in, um, especially all the things we've talked about on this episode and previous episodes. What are the similarities and differences between people who have mastered a meditative state or you know something like that compared to people using psychedelics? And you know, one of the really cool things about EEG is that it's a way that we can study the human brain uh, you know, we have lots of techniques in animals that <laughs> ethically we cannot do uh, in human subjects. And so EEG is is an excellent tool to get some insight into what are the brain changes during different states um, related to drugs or related to, to other things. Um, so it was very interesting for them to say, you know, in these ways, the shamanic brain was similar in achieving certain, you know, wave states compared to those people using psychedelic drugs. Um, And then also highlighting some of the differences and mostly that even stronger effects were achieved with the, the shamanic people compared to people using psychedelics. And of course, thinking about combinations the shaman, you know, meditation plus psychedelic, you know, those are, you know, sort of cool things to think about in the future. The other piece that I like about it, as I mentioned, is you can translate, you can, what we might call reverse translate this back to animal models. So we can do brain imaging 
in rodent models or in other species to try to compare signatures of what's happening in the human brain under meditation or under psychedelics. What does that look like in animals as a way to sort of beef up our ability to to test these things in animal models? So I always, I, I really like these imaging studies, especially with, um, you know, drugs that we are more challenged with how to, how to model that in animals. So that was very cool. Yeah, I, I would I would agree with that, and you know I wonder if this is going to be how reproducible some of this this research is. And, and Nigam, you know, what did you think of the sample size in this study? You, is this enough to convince you that shama, shamanic practices can lead to alter, you know, brain states in terms of brain waves, or do you think they need you know to, to double these numbers up a little bit? Twenty four shamanic practitioners. And how do they even determine they were shamanic practitioners? Um, I know me and you, we've talked about, uh, for example, on the clubhouse uh, on Monday nights, we've talked about um, the fake shamans. And we always make fun of this guy, the quantum shaman, who talks about like electrocuting himself for therapeutic benefits um, before jumping in an ice bath and just weird stuff that no one should ever try ever. Um, but but Nigam, your, your kind of thoughts on this article. My question to you is, is do you think this article literally means that there are people who are just trippy people? Like they have brains that without a pharma, you know, non-pharmacological stimuli can sort of uh, get into a psychedelics type state, and which this would seem to be hinting at in this article. Yeah, I actually, I, I'm curious, Jehan, what you think about this term non-pharmacological I, I, that seems like a little bit strange, right? They're, they're meaning like the seed is not like you're not seeding it with a drug, but yet still there's pharmacological stuff happening in our bodies all the time. You don't really need drugs, right? So, um, but to, to your specific question, oh, one thing before the specific question, uh, Jehan, you highlighted some of the, the false shamans. What I was flashing back to um, the revolution will not be microdosed episode with friend of the show, uh, Tim Schlitt, where we're like joking about the eye shaman, you know? So is it like how many of these 24 were the eye shaman? Uh, but, but to be a little more serious, um, 24 is not bad. Uh, I think and here's, this is a great exercise in bias for people who aren't really, really critical and understanding of all the forms of bias. Here's a good example. I'm a little bit biased as I'm saying this because I believe this already. I believed this before I got a PhD in hard sciences, you know, that the mind is powerful, that meditation is powerful, that altered states of consciousness and even like the mind body connection, altered states of, you know, physicality are achievable through meditation and through exercises of the mind and practices of the mind. So um, I guess a better way to say it is that I'm less critical of these sort of low numbers, 24 uh, people in each group being the, you know, shaman group and then being like the non-shaman drug user group or psychedelic, you know, drug group. Uh, I'm a little less critical because I kind of already believed, experienced, knew this 
before and not from anything related to drug use, but from just being a thoughtful person who is exposed to meditation and exposed to some of these other practices who myself understood and believed it. So anyways, I, I'm not going to be too critical uh, about the sizes here, but I did really, really like this study. Um, I like the way they analyzed it. What Sarah was saying was, it was cool. And, um, I have a couple friends who work in neuroscience and they were like doing all this kind of stuff and like building and selling the instrumentation to track all these type of, um, you know, brain activity, you know, prior to the psychedelics boom, the Renaissance. And now just to see all of these things combining, um, I'm loving it. I I'm, uh, I'm, I'm pretty, I'm pretty pleased. I, I would recommend that the listeners check this out and, and send us some thoughts. So I'm curious what, uh, what other people think about it. Thank you, Nigam. You know, I, I got a, you know, I have a patenting question. So let's just say I patented something like this. Could people have to pay me a dollar every time they have low beta waves in their brain? You know what I mean? Like, could it just be like little thing goes off and their little, you know, Elon, you know, whatever, depending on the vaccine they got, they either got the Bill Gates microchip or the Elon Musk microchip. And I get a little alert on my phone. It's like, oh, so and so has uh, now uh, reached this brain level state. Now you got to give me a, a dollar. So, yeah, I'm just trying to think like what would be the most ridiculous patent that I could do off of this. And maybe that's. A, <laughs> uh, I'm sorry, that's a weird question, Graham. But it's making me think of things like that. Like you know, people patent jeans, and does that mean they can like knock on my door or say, "Hey, did you pay for those jeans?" Um, so you know, I wonder uh, if people are going to patent states of consciousness. You know, this is what, you know, we're starting to get down this path of we can potentially predict what will happen in, say, a population of brains to some degree. These waves go up, these waves go down. This is the brain thumbprint of a psychedelic trance state. Um, maybe you can only patent how to get there, I, I guess. I don't know if my question's making legal sense or not, but... <laughs> Graham, feel free to ignore that and respond with your thoughts about the article. No, that that is no. I think I think it's a good question, and it made me very curious too about how long we go about enforcing these. You know, now when I'm say if I, if I were to be playing drums, if I was playing them late at night, I wouldn't be worried that my neighbor is going to complain, but maybe my neighbor is going to report me for patent infringement. Um, <laughs> but no, I mean, I, I think actually your your question is a really good one because there are a lot of companies now who are trying to find ways to use um, these sorts of tools as part of psychedelic assisted therapy. Um, you know, there's just um, somewhat recently announcement around UCSF and um, the lab there doing work around set and setting. And there's been a lot of work with EGs that's been announced um, and that companies are working with. And I think a lot of them are thinking about ways to look at a um, subject or a participant's brainwaves and how to correlate that with improvements in outcome. And I think many of those will be patented. So uh, I think you're right to draw a distinction between the brainwaves that a person could naturally have or the brainwave that a person would have that's a result of some sort of intervention. But I, I think there are going to be ways to achieve a certain set of brain kind of fingerprints, brainwave fingerprints that people will try to find ways to, to patent thinking that they're, you know, that the best ways somebody can most quickly achieve a mystical state or achieve a reduction in depression or um, accomplish uh, becoming a better Go player or, or, you know, something that's somehow correlated with uh, 
some particular brain wave fingerprint. Graham, did you say Go player? Yeah, <laughs> I, I did say Go. Oh, we're going to have to take that one offline, man. All right, cool. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you know, and, I, and I'm wondering if I'm going to have a new hobby coming up in the future where I go around issuing fake patent infringement citations at like drum circles and parks. Just be like, well, you guys are in flagrant violation of my corporation's patent. You're out <laughs> here administering my product to the public without a license. And that's, um, uh, that plays so well to the game, too. <laughs> I oh, think that could be really fun. Is it? Uh, well, any final thoughts, uh, my fellow panelists, before we move on to the game? Are we all ready to take a short break I mean, and come my, back? My only final thought was I'm not the kind of trippy person you were two were talking about before because I actually played Michael Harner's Shamanic Journey solo and double drumming last night after reading this article, and I don't <laughs> think I achieved an altered state of consciousness. Oh, bummer. Well, you weren't using my protocol, so there you go. <laughs> and, <laughs> Maybe my sound system. Did uh, Sarah, were you going to say one closing thing about it? Yeah, I just had two quick thoughts that I think Graham really touched on. One is like, you know, thinking about applications. So everyone's free to steal this idea and call Graham afterwards and write up a patent. You know, have you seen that, what is it, cardio mobile commercial where you put your thumbs on your phone and you get your EKG? So, you know, something like that where you can measure EEG, which makes me think if you go on the meditation retreat and you want to monitor yourself for safety reasons you know is there a correlate of measuring eeg that's in the safe zone you know versus the dangerous and then yeah again i think graham mentioned this or maybe it was nigam can you can you fast forward through the meditation or avoid the psychedelics and do something like transmagnetic stimulation to mimic whatever the brain waves are in these folks and you know use that uh, therapeutically in some way. So a lot of interesting applications possible with that research. You know, yes, sir, you bring up a fantastic point before we go to the game. You know, there, there, I believe there have been some studies on like when people can see their heart rate, they mm -hmm. can do the breath work to, to raise and lower it and, and things like that. Once you can kind of see the numbers, you can start to like try to like manipulate it internally. Um, mm -hmm. So, so I wonder like if we all could like, much like we might check the stock market, like, oh, are our brainwaves crashing today? You know? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that would be totally fascinating. I mean, I always wondered, like, you know, people always talk about, oh, I don't have any serotonin. Like, we all kind of laugh about it. Oh, I can't, you know, make dopamine brain. I'd be like, man, I wish I could see that in, like, real time. Be like, oh, I really do need to go for a run and get those endocannabinoids flowing. Mm -hmm. um, well, in uh, you know, Jayha, just a tiny little tidbit that's um, so in grad school, I worked a lot on sensing, sensing platforms, different type of like bioanalytical sensing um, devices. And the first one that I worked on that kind of hooked me on that was we were trying to build a live biosensor for uh, neurotransmitters so that mm. you could literally say or like see this person has. This is their serotonin level over this amount of time. This is their serotonin level when they're feeling this way. Same with epinephrine, same with norepinephrine and all this. So um, in hindsight, I'm kind of upset that I didn't pursue that more strongly. But don't we all have regrets about grad school, right? So but you wouldn't you wouldn't be here. Hey, regretty. If you have regretty, eat spaghetti. That's what I always say. Um all right, we're going to take a short break, an ad from one of our sponsors, and we'll be right back with our game for this episode hosted by our guest, Graham. 
At Marku and Aurora, we understand that navigating the investment landscape in cannabis and psychedelics is complex. We utilize our in-house expertise in science to support investors and innovators. Reach out to us to start a conversation about how we can help guide your investment decisions and prepare your next venture for success. back welcome to today's game today our group will be playing for the grand prize of helping to expand scientific and legal thought graham is here our, our new guest to the show with a game he came prepared to the party i love it graham tell us about today's game oh thank you for the great privilege of being able to post this game on your podcast um today's game is three truths and a lie with patent applications in the psychedelic space. There have been a lot of patent applications filed with psychedelics, and many of them have caused surprise to people, even so much surprise, I've had to actually send PDFs of patents to confirm that I wasn't making them up. People even thought I've sent them fake PDFs of patents. So <laughs> this game, uh, we'll see how easy it is for you, but um, there is one in here that is fake, but the other three are all true um so whenever you're ready i'll read the four titles yeah uh i'm i i'm ready to be dosed by your patents well let's begin the first patent application is methods for protecting hair follicles and preventing hair shedding with topical dmt the okay. second application Treating food allergies by administering an intactogen, including MDMA. The third application, methods for increasing the likelihood of encountering autonomous entities with inhaled DMT. And our last application, processes for manufacturing therapeutic nanowaters using LSD and psychedelic tryptamines. Wow. Um, I want them all to be true in some way, but I, I think I'm having a bit of definition issues. Um, you know, like, so for example, uh, treating food allergies, you know, I imagine if you took MDMA, everything would feel great. And if you're feeling better, maybe you don't care about the allergic response you're having, you know, you get a skin rash, you're, you're on ecstasy. Maybe you don't notice the skin rash as much. The tingling, burning sensation <laughs> is somehow novel. Um, <laughs> I'm sorry. Um, but, you know, the and, and then the one about methods for increasing the likelihood of encountering autonomous entities. Isn't that just like meeting people? I, I guess, Graham, if you could clarify, what's an autonomous entity? Is it this collection of molecules known as Jehan and the other collection of molecules Jay known as Nigam? Jehan, I think these are the these are the entities you run into when you're growing your mushrooms in space from earlier, right? <laughs> okay. I think, right? Graham, oh, is that what oh, it means? Oh, like the space <laughs> elves or whatever. Yeah, yeah right? I think these might be those self-transforming machine elves. But um, but yeah, I, I could, mm. could see all of us being autonomous entities. I guess that might be a, a question that leaves this... <laughs> 
patent application open to challenge in litigation. We would have yeah. to see how they define it in the application itself. Yeah, yeah. All right. Interesting. <laughs> I, I read it just to clarify, Jahan, sorry, I read it as straight aliens. I think they right? Am I wrong? I think that's the intention, right? Yeah, I think you're I right, mean, Nigam. Like yeah. otherworldly, I think is the point. Yeah, and that's with just inhaled DMT, right? Not oh, topically yeah. applied. No, no, we, yeah, that's no, that's for the hair. For that's hair. for the hair follicles. <laughs> yeah, oh, that, that might be a side effect of protecting your hair follicles. So the more, <laughs> so the you take the DMT, you meet the aliens, you grow the hair. I, I, mean, I do wonder. Yeah, we we don't have information here. I should have written it down if these are the same applicants, but maybe they <laughs> found that if you smoke DMT right. and meet aliens you also have now cured your baldness. Yeah, well, think about the flexibility of such a product. You wake up in the morning and you decide, I can rub it on my head to grow some hair or I can inhale it to meet an alien. Like you, it's like, like those you choose books, you know? It's like, hey, dude, I have this great pomade. I, I totally, I'm not a Dapper Dan man anymore. I got this, got this stuff. Just comb it in. <laughs> um, I mean, all I know is I'm washing down my MDMA with some therapeutic lsd nano water yeah and that's something i want to ask is nano water <laughs> like that um is that that uh thing that's like um the the, the those doctors that aren't really doc like naturopaths or whatever where you have the water that's in a particular molecular conformation or is this literally like water with nanomolar amounts like, like microdose amounts of, of psychedelics in it what what, what is a therapeutic nano water and and just to also nano what are therapeutic nano waters with an s like what are the <laughs> like what are the other ones yeah i think these compounds are in nanoparticle formulation mm, mm, i okay. guess with lsd okay. it could be a very small amount of nano water on a nano blotter <laughs> well, dr seuss writing about lsd <laughs> <laughs> wow um gosh you know okay so uh, let me just try to run through this. Uh, methods for protecting hair follicles, preventing hair shedding. You know, yeah, people, people, a lot of people are, are like narcissistic and vain. And, and you know, I'm going to miss these when they're gone. I, I throw some DMT on there to see if it works. So, uh, yeah, um, I would say that that's very believable that someone would try to patent that. Um, treating a food allergy by administering an enactogen uh, or intactogen, like let's just say it's MDMA. That sounds dangerous. Um, you know, food allergies are serious. People can die from them. So, uh, you know, restaurant owners have gone to jail for putting in peanuts and replacing for in like replacing almonds and not telling people. So I feel like this, mm, you know, if it was like, you know, uh, pet allergies or like seasonal allergies, maybe I'd be inclined to believe it. But this, this one seems... Uh, to have some serious public health implications versus like, you know, meeting autonomous entities or like, you know, doses of LSD or psychedelics that would have no perceivable effect. Like, you know, like CBD water, right? Like it's not doing anything. It's working less than the, the, the former president does, you know? Um, so I would say that I think the lie is treating food allergies with the MDMA product right now. Uh, so that's my uninformed opinion, and I think I'm I'm, I'm probably sticking with that. Um, well, thank you. That's that's a great guess. Um, you have 
25% chance, I guess, of being right. Uh, All right, Nigam, uh, great minds don't always think alike. Yeah, so I'll just run through them quick. Uh, the DMT hair thing, I believe, I, I and maybe it's because I peripherally like heard of it. Or I just, I think that one's true. Um, the Jehan, I'm actually going to disagree with you on the food allergy one. The only reason is because we've together heard anecdotally stories about LSD as well as psilocybin and like uh, pet like dander allergies. Yeah, in this thing. yeah. So I, I now, would agree. I've yeah. never heard it about MDMA. MDMA doesn't work quite in the same way, but we're not talking about science and physiological outcomes. We're talking about patents that were filed, right? So um, I think the second one's true, too. Yeah, gosh. The, the third one, um, methods for increasing the likelihood of encountering autonomous entities with inhaled DMT. Um I really, really want to to say I believe this is true, but it's just like um, I mean, just look at the way we were like laughing about it earlier. I think this, if I had to pick one that was the gag, that kind of seems like the gag. And I really wish the last one was the gag, but I think it's not because um, you know, for example, in the cannabis space, how many water soluble or bioavailability uh, enhanced techniques have we seen? Mm. Um, so the fact that folks are doing this with LSD and nanowater, um, I'd like to excuse myself from even saying the word nanowater twice on this <laughs> show. <laughs> like, wow. Okay. <laughs> Anyways, um, but I, I kind of believe that that's a thing that someone's trying to patent because that kind of st- it is out there it does sell and then lsd is you know readily soluble so okay cool um so i'm gonna guess unfortunately it saddens me a little bit i'm gonna guess the d the dmt being better at introducing you to the aliens i'm gonna guess that's not the one that's the, huh. that that's the and, fake one i mean you know Nigam, i was thinking about that too but then i thought you know Gosh, maybe this is a way. Uh, I mean, we're going to have to figure out. We could both be wrong, but I was thinking that maybe that's a patent to like standardize a particular effect, right? Because everyone wants to meet the aliens, and maybe you have a way of like forcing that hallucination to happen. Like, stare at this picture of aliens for two hours and then take DMT and tell me if you don't see aliens. Like, let's, you know. <laughs> yeah, uh, Graham, real or fake? You got to send me some PDFs after the show, man. I gotta, I yeah. gotta read all of these. <laughs> oh my gosh! All <laughs> so, right. Well, I'm, I'm wondering if you're if you're using some of that topical DMT because you do have a very nice head of hair. Thank you, thank you. <laughs> I, will not re- I will not reveal my secret on the show today. <laughs> it's it's lather, rinse, and repeat. <laughs> Always repeat. Yeah. I'm gonna go with the topical DMT pomade as the fake one um, because I can't think of a mechanism Mm. and it doesn't seem to be a patent that would also lead to a psychedelic experience. And I feel Mm. like people in this patent space are, are sort of depending on the psychedelic nature to get in there. So that I'm, I'm going with number one. Interesting, Sarah. Yeah, one of these things is not like the other. Wow. Wow. That's a great... um, Yeah, I didn't think about that. I was just 
thinking, man, topical, they're probably using some sort of not like in the cannabis space, not thinking about let's just put transdermal stuff for stuff we wanted to, you know, treat outside the skin or whatever. But yeah, fascinating. So, okay, we, we've hedged our bets. I'm going for treating aller- food allergies by administering an intactogen, including MDMA. Nigam, you think it's methods for increasing the likelihood of encountering autonomous entities with inhaled demon tea is the fake patent. And Sarah, you think the fake patent that's been filed is methods for protecting hair follicles and preventing hair shedding with topical DMT, right? Yep. Well, three very good guesses. Unfortunately, only one of them is correct. And the fake patent is encountering autonomous entities. We got to get a scoreboard, man. I think I think I might be the the, the game leader. I've won a bunch of these. Yeah, games. yeah. You, you're the Dwayne Johnson of uh, HLI games, what man. Can I you're say? just the rock. What can yeah. I say? Yeah. Laying the smackdown in these games, dude. I want to know how you calibrate your baloney detector, nigga. That is amazing. <laughs> well, you, uh, there's a there's a lot of experiential things that went into it. So. <laughs> I got years and years to catch Gra- up. On Graham that. and I are Graham, working on well. a on a baloney detector patent, psychedelic baloney detector <laughs> patent on the side. Cannot disclose anything further. <laughs> you actually put DMT yeah. in your ear, and then you're we, able we to still detect. Still need to try all the psychedelics to see which one provides the best baloney detecting. Yeah, <laughs> there you go. Graham, that was fantastic. Yeah, man, thank uh, you. That was super thank fun. You. Wow. Oh, thank my you. gosh. Um, we, I want to have you back just to play this game again. Um, <laughs> well, I've got plenty more surprising, silly, and fairly outrageous patents, so we can, can play this game quite a few number more times. <laughs> awesome. Well, we're going to, uh, we might, we might just have to do that. All right, listener, that's our show. Thanks for clicking, tapping, swiping, or however you are hearing this. We appreciate it. Thank you to our trusty audio engineer. This show is edited and mixed by Joe Leonardo. And thank you to our podcast cover artist, Lena Lee, for crafting custom artwork for each episode. Thank you so much. 